Because we live in a fallen and broken world, things are not the way they're supposed to be. This is the case culture-wide, and to believe that the church is immune is to be ignorant. The church is fertile ground for the abuse of power, sexual abuse, and narcissistic leadership. How can we recognize this, prevent this, and even push back where these things exist? We'll be talking with Dr. Diane Langberg about power systems, abuse, trauma in the church, and much more on this episode of Youth Culture Matters. From the Center for Parent Youth Understanding, this is Youth Culture Matters. If you're a parent, youth worker, educator, counselor, grandparent, or anyone else who cares about kids, we're glad you've joined us for this practical, informative, and hope-filled podcast. This is a place where together we talk and think Christianly about the rapidly changing world of today's children, teens, and young adults. Well, hello again, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Youth Culture Matters. I'm Walt Mueller here at the Center for Parent Youth Understanding. And as always, I'm joined by my favorite co-host ever, and that's Jason Soshinik, who is joining us from Spokane, Washington, where he heads up Project 619. Jason, welcome. Well, thank you. It's uh, great to be here. Happy podcast. How are you doing there in Elizabethtown, Pennsylvania? Uh kind of hot here isn't it it's been hot the last few days so but but everything's good because it's summertime so we're a couple of days into summer here and excited about that uh today jason and i are going to have a a a conversation about youth culture and then i'm going to spend some time interviewing uh, a woman who is really i think is a gift to the church jason i'm pretty excited about this Dr. Diane Langberg, who is a counselor with well over 40 years of experience in working with victims of trauma, uh, working with pastors, working with survivors of sexual abuse. She's been to some of the the, uh, darkest places on earth when it comes to trauma, like Ground Zero, also to Rwanda after the genocide to work with genocide victims. But Diane has written a phenomenal book, uh, called Suffering and the Heart of God, and we are going to be talking a little bit about that book and some of the systems in the church that we need to be aware of. This is going to be an especially helpful podcast for people in youth ministry, for parents, um, for pastors, you know, anybody who's involved in a church as we talk about some difficult subjects. But we're going to do that later after we spend some time together, as we always do, Uh, talking back and forth about youth culture. But before we get to that, as always, we turn to our Yeah, Chris Chris and Kenton are sitting over there with smirks on their face, devilish smirks. Um, Chris is on this crusade to, you know, a little bit of revenge, and you'd have to listen to past podcasts to get that. So they always start with a quiz or a question. I don't know if he's going to go easy or go hard on us today, but... I've got a fun question for you. I know we've talked about this, Walt, so I'm pretty sure I know your answer, and it's not something to embarrass you or anything by, but I I think it's... So I get to wait even more now for that. I like your answer. If if you answer the way I expect I sure hope I remember the answer I've given to this Uh, question. No, you you will. All right, so here we go. Uh, when you die and get to heaven, what is the first question that you would like to ask? I, yeah, I do have an answer to this, but I'm gonna wait. How come it took the long so? How come it took the Cubs so long to win a World Series? Okay. 
All right. Now let's. That's your question, <laughs> no, Jason. No, in all seriousness. No, no, but that might be one of the questions. Well, can I just inter- uh, let me just say something about that? You're assuming. <clears throat> oh, yeah. You're assuming that they're going to win. That they're going to win before you move from this earth. That, that, to that is, and and if not, my question will be: How come they never won? <laughs> yeah. In the last hundred years, hundred and fifty years. Which uh, you're sitting there with a Cubs hat on your head, as you always, as you always are when we record. What do you think is going to happen this year? Not always, because I mean it's fun. But, it's fun as we yeah, move year, through the season. Yeah, to hear the banter exciting... back and forth from Cubs fans yeah. because they're obviously doing a great job as a team. They just destroyed my Phillies, you know, a couple of weeks ago. Are you are you optimistic? Cautiously optimistic, thinking that, uh, yeah. that this Ca- time next year you're going to opti- be yeah next year you'll be gone. Cautiously. Yeah, well, it happened again. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm cautiously optimistic. I, I am I am uh, a, a true Cubs fan in the sense that I have such a hard time saying that we will win it all. But I, I do believe that we have an opportunity like any other year in my lifetime to actually win, to actually go and win a World Series. Um, I, but, but as you like to remind me through text, Pete Rose... Uh, actually said if the Cubs uh, are as good as they, they say they are, they continue to play as well as they, they are, they'll find a way to screw it up. Yeah. And, <laughs> and and honestly, as a Cubs fan, I, I say, well, you're probably right. But I, I, believe, uh, I, I believe that we have an opportunity, unlike any other, this season. I can't, We're just stacked. You know what? And I can't make fun of you with that because I'm a, I'm a Philly sports fan. And it just always seems that, that the closer you get to realizing ultimate victory, the more you're you're just constantly looking around and looking over your shoulder and waiting for the disaster to come. So I get yes. that. Yeah. But do you have a question? Yeah. Do you have an answer to Chris's yeah. question? Oh yeah, I have to think about that. What's yours gonna be? I wanna know if it matches what Chris thinks it's gonna be. Oh, so you're turning this back around on me. I, I told I you I am, because I need a moment to really think okay, about right. it. Okay, so, right. Well, why don't you just say that? Just say, I don't have an answer. Answer the question. Okay, I don't have an answer just yet. And what's going to happen here yours. is I'm going to give my answer, but you're not listening because you're thinking about what your answer is. I know how this works. <laughs> is that is that an accurate assessment? No, it's not okay, how right. it works. Here it is. I, Here's I just, my I, question. I, I want to hear. And look, you could call my wife, Lisa, in here, and you could blindside her with this question, and she would tell you exactly what I'm going to say. So here it is, all right? I'm going to ask, did Oswald act alone? That's what I expected. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just, ever since 1963, I mean, I've been, I don't want to say I'm obsessed with this, but I'm interested in it. Borderline. Uh, Borderline obsessed. You know, the assassination of JFK and all the conspiracy theories. I'm I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I will read what some of them are, but I won't argue any of them. And I've been there. I've seen the place. It's rather amazing, and it makes your head spin even more. It's a lot. It's a. It's because it's my most vivid memory from when I was a kid. I was in second grade at the time, and I just remember that entire weekend um, so clearly, like it happened yesterday. So I am curious about that. You know, it's because there's so much debate on it. Yeah. So what's yours? That's oh well I, I I was waiting for something 
uh, maybe more <laughs> profound. I don't know. Uh, but <laughs> so so that that gave me freedom. It's at least to, a, to it's at least a compliment that you expect something more profound from me. Yeah, so it is. Take that as a compliment. Yeah. Sorry to disappoint <laughs> I, you. <laughs> you know, uh, so so going along a similar vein of conspiracy, I want to know what ha- happened in Roswell. I want to know about the UFOs that are so often discussed. Oh, okay, I got two because because I'm very curious about that. I was always I I have to do two because the I, people that know me know that th- this is one of my big things. So the second thing is, is there a Sasquatch or Yeti? <laughs> because I believe there is. Oh, that's great. I, I got nothing. I've to done. Say. I, hey, <laughs> do you watch all that YouTube I, stuff? I don't. I don't get into all that stuff. But I, I, uh, I, I don't know. I, I just find it highly fascinating, and I find I find it when you really break it down, highly uh, likely that there could potentially be yeah. a, a Yeti or a Sasquatch. Yeah. I don't know. I, I watched a video a while ago. Maybe some people have seen this. I, I it was in the last year, I guess. But somebody posted a video like, "Man, there he is." Okay, there's Sasquatch, and it was some guy walking his dog down a road, and he <laughs> happened to be filming it. And what it appeared to me to be happening in this grainy video was a guy in like a a cheap gorilla suit you'd buy at the party store walked across the street about 50 yards up and ran into the woods. But this thing had millions <laughs> of views, you know, so. I know. That, I that stuff you, I find. I wondered no, if you I'm were one of them because like, I was, yeah. Just cause no, I, I was not. Okay. I, yeah. I don't get too much into that stuff. I just I, I just wonder. Yeah. I don't know. I just am yeah. fascinated with some of that stuff. Mm. Interesting. Hey, this so. be, you know what? This would be a great, Chris, that was a good question because this would be a great question for families if you're looking for some dinner table conversation if you want to spark it ask this question at the dinner table great idea and yeah. uh, same thing in a youth group great, you know if idea. you're looking for a, a good good way to break down you know some communication barriers and start some good conversation because you, you get to know what's on what's on people's minds and quite yeah. frankly you scare me jason Okay. Yeah, let's, I, I was waiting for the yeah. I was waiting for the conclusion of that statement, but well, yeah. let's talk a little bit about youth culture. We call this our two minute drill. The guys are over there on the bell, and we've got two minutes to go back and forth on. And we will do uh, our best to do two minutes. Stories. Yeah. Well, let's so let's stick with it, Jason. What do you got? Yeah. So the first thing that I have is uh, a study that comes out of the University of Utah, uh, which uh, talked about uh, the impact that premarital sex was having on uh, the divorce rate. And what they found was that uh, the, the fewer sexual partners you had, the higher likelihood that you would not have divorce. And, and I think that this is data that's been, been uh, around for quite some time. There have been books that have uh, written on this, one of which I, I, I think of as uh, Why Marriage Matters, which came out in the late 90s. Some of, that stu- some of those studies, though, were, were eventually debunked in what they found, um, or at least what I think is that there are there studies that came along that, that maybe changed some of the perception. But this is a brand new study that came out of the University of Utah, and what they found was uh, that those that um, choose to wait actually have higher likelihood of success in their marriages. Uh, specifically from the article, it says in the 2000s, about 
uh, 33% of women in the 10 plus category saw their marriages end by year five. Well, what's 10 and plus? That, what's 10 plus? What uh, 10 that plus? 10 plus, sorry, yeah, thank you. 10 plus partners, okay. sexual partners, um, saw their marriages end by year five. That fell to 30% for two partners, uh, roughly 25% for three to uh, three uh, partners and just over 20% for one. So we see it drastically drop as the fewer partners, the, the fewer the partners they had, the less likely they were to divorce. And I think that this is really important, especially as you're having conversations in your youth groups um, about the impact uh, of the decisions that we make around sex and sexuality as you're diving into good, healthy, biblical understanding of what God's design for sex is. I, I think it's really important to bring in data much like this that um, has been studied, looked at, uh, because I think it reinforces a lot of what we find in Scripture. Yeah, and the whole idea, as I, as I read this, I was, I, I kept coming back to what you're talking about there, what what Scripture says about marriage, and we talk about this. You know, it's not, it's a, it's a positive yeah. thing. God's big yes for sexuality to become one flesh, and so this is why it's important for us to talk about this something that amazing, there's something amazing that happens, uh, you know, for a couple as they. Uh, covenant in marriage to each other and and uh, you know consummate their marriage with sexual intercourse so we need to be teaching our kids about sex and marriage hey I, I've got a story here that that's rather interesting at a couple levels you know one of the big trends right now has to do with health and eating and the whole vegan movement and how more and more teenagers are actually becoming vegans which I I don't think I knew one one teenager, one peer when I was growing up who was a vegan. In fact, we were more into, you know, hamburgers and Twinkies and and yodels and all that kind of stuff. And now kids are eating healthy, maybe to an extreme. I don't know, people, you'll have to judge for that based on the kids you know and love. But this research that's being done is saying that more and more kids are getting into this and it seems to be that social media, not surprising at all, Instagram, YouTube, and all the tutorials that are on there is what's driving this. So kids, and they interviewed many, many kids, you know, why are, why are so many teens ditching meat and dairy? And as they interview the kids, they're going, hey, uh, one young man, 17-year-old, a 17-year-old says, I stumbled across veganism while browsing online. I saw some videos and immediately became interested in it. And so you see this more and more that it's not just the whole vegan movement that's being propagated on social media, but just about anything and everything. And so my point in bringing this up is that we need to know what is trending out there. Those of us who are youth workers, those of us who are parents, we need to know what's trending out there because whatever is trending is what's on the consciousness of the collective youth culture and our individual kids and this seems to be the way that ideas and values are being propagated out on social media, in the world of social media, and that's where they go viral. And what we need to understand is that it's beliefs that yield behaviors. So if we want to know how our kids are going to be living based on what they're thinking and believing, we need to know what's out there. So, Yeah, well, and just even going further with the beliefs beyond uh, lead to behavior, uh, the next article really hits upon that, and that's just the idea that we see more and more youth that are broadcasting crimes on social media. Um, it was brought up recently in the Brock Turner case. If you're not familiar with that, that was the, the case uh, of sexual assault out of Stanford, uh, but that um, there might have been um, uh, a picture that was taken 
Uh, it was not brought up because they couldn't necessarily confirm that, but through a messaging app called GroupMe. And uh, these are things that are starting to happen more and more often. And, and so the, as the rise of social media continues, its influence also continues. And so I'm glad, Walt, that you brought that up in the last article, because in this article, what we find is that um, more and more teens are actually, and, and young adults are sharing their crimes on social media. And, and I think that uh, uh, there was uh, another article that we had discussed earlier in an earlier podcast specifically around uh, uh, someone filming someone being raped and they were caught up in the likes and you could hear them giggling, uh, not recognizing they were uh, a, a, a part of a crime, accessory yeah. to a crime. And so these are – many years ago, I remember I was talking about sexting, and, and that's still an issue. But now we're moving to a place where we are actually filming many of our life instances and crime being one of those. And so we have to be aware. We have to provide opportunity to have conversations around this in such a way that um, – that we're teaching good methods of what we use social media for, but also I think it comes around to uh, morality. It comes around to um, just like the idea of what we see, sometimes we respond to, we act out. We have to be really careful with that. I, I like one part of this article, and it says it very clearly, and I think this, this fits really well. At its darkest, social media encourages us to top each other in our quest to be the funniest or most, most outrageous. And while this urge alone cannot have caused these crimes, it has become intertwined with them. Likes, favorites, and follows trigger the reward centers in our brain and appeal to a base instinct for approval. We're not always wired to know when this approval comes uh, for the wrong reasons. Yeah. And there's narcissism again. You know, it's yes. all about me and I want people to see me. So I'll do whatever I have to do to get people to see me on social media. Hey, speaking of social media, another trend that we need to notice and, and uh, respond to, it's not just with our kids, it's with our grown kids. And this would be moms, uh, young moms, and I think older moms and maybe even grandmothers are getting into this. And just because the research points to moms doesn't mean this is limited to females. So don't please don't interpret it that way. But Edison Research looked at how often mothers are checking their Facebook accounts. And they found that as they've traced this over the years, starting back in 2012, because so we're only looking at five years, you know, 2012, 13, 14, 15, and 16, they're finding that um, in today's world, Mothers are checking Facebook, and this is just one example of a social media site, an average of 10.1 times a day. And again, you know, the question we have to ask all the time is, you know, is this a good use of time? And then we also need to ask why. And as we talk to young people, as we listen to young people, and even as we listen to some mothers and track with some of the research coming out on moms, we find that, that one of the reasons for this is, you know, am I measuring up? I want to check what other people are posting. I want to check what their kids are doing. I want to check what their family is involved in. And how do we measure up? Do we meet this level of, of uh, expectation and activity and achievement? Or do we, and I think in most people's minds, they hope to, uh, exceed this? You know, do we want to be better than someone else? And so there's been a lot of talk about comparison. There's been a lot of talk about Facebook addiction. We actually put together a trend alert on this that's up on our website that we can point people to. And, you know, people are using this to promote themselves and, ki and their kids. And 
Look, there's nothing wrong with checking social media. But the question is, why do we do it? What's our motivation behind that? And that's where we can really be having problems. And I think it's a time waster, too. It is. And and uh, the thing that I would like to even point out, and, and you brought it up, is the dynamic of Facebook depression that you wrote about several years ago. It was actually, I think, two years ago. And so this is not new, and this is something that CPYU has been tackling for quite some time, so I'm really grateful for that. Uh, the next article, uh, news uh story on youth culture that we find um, comes uh, with regards to teens drinking Um, and what they're now finding and we have actually talked a lot about this before but they're now actually finding through study that uh, teen drinking actually causes or may cause damage uh, to the ability to handle stress Um, so and specifically the way that most teens drink is through binging so high amounts of alcohol short periods of time so that they uh, essentially get drunk and what they find is that when you binge in your early to mid-teen years, it can actually alter the way the brain deals with stress uh, and then even moving then into adulthood. Um, and, and for those that may or may not know, uh, when you're stressed, your body produces cortisol, and the, that stress hormone then helps the body cope with stress. And over weeks to years, the body should release less of the hormone as it learns to adapt to stress. But what they're finding is that, uh, and they did this through, through studies on rats, that um, when there has been a series of uh, binging uh, opportunities uh, that have taken place over the course of a short period of time, that actually the body does not cope as well to, to, to stress. It continues to release high levels of cortisol rather than decreasing over time when they're introduced into high stress levels. And so uh, it's just one more example of why we need to be talking about drinking, why we need to be talking about substance abuse. We need to be talking about drugs. Uh, these are still very important things that uh, are taking place in the lives of our teens. And so we need to be able to find good biblical uh, ways to engage in the issues that are happening because it's not just causing harm uh, to them in the short term. It actually is having a tremendous impact on the long term. Uh, rest of life. And this is why, you know, I go back all the time to just a couple of questions or, or statements you need to make when you teach kids. One is that every time you make a decision, you're choosing sides. And we're talking here about the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And every decision you make sets you on a course um, in the wake of that decision for the rest of your life. It, it will change the course of the rest of your life, sometimes in small ways, sometimes in big ways. Hey, the last thing I'll mention here, Jason, is uh, a book I've read. I don't know if you've had a chance to pick this up or not. We haven't talked about it, but it is on the New York Times bestseller list right now. It's a book called Tribe, subtitled on Homecoming and Belonging. It's gotten a lot of press, written by Sebastian Junger, J-U-N-G-E-R. Some people will remember Junger because he wrote the book uh, The Perfect Storm. That was really his, I believe, his breakout book. I read that almost 20 years ago now. There's a film made about about that that crazy storm back in 1991 off uh, the coast of New England there. But this book is it really, it's not a long book, but it is a rather fascinating book. Just about, it's, it's publicized as being about stress and trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder and what happens to vets when they come back from being in battle. But it really is about much more than that. I was actually surprised to learn that it's really a book about community. Now, what I want to say is that if you read this book, you know, Junger definitely comes from the perspective of the foundation of a a naturalistic worldview as opposed to a theistic worldview. But it's really interesting to see how he pushes 
the reality of the fact that we are made for community. We understand this from the biblical perspective. And certainly we've been talking a lot about social media, and, and I said, you know, increasingly over the last few years, more and more often that social media actually breaks down community because we're, we're not who we are. But he, he, here's the basic thing I want to pass on, and just use this as a recommendation to read this. People, he says, people do better during wartime. That the kinds of things that we think cause stress, you know, the horrors of war, the pains of war, things like that, actually bring out the best in us in terms of community. And it's when we come back and jump into our individualistic lives that we have great, great difficulty with these things. So I'm going to end just by, I just want to read a couple of quotes here. This is, these are, uh, he says, what people miss, presumably, this is when we step out of, you know, war and things, isn't danger or loss, but the unity that these things often engender. There are obvious stressors on a person in a group, but there may be even greater stresses on a person in isolation. So during disasters, there is a net gain of well-being. And he cites the fact that in London during World War II, when people were hunkering down in bunkers every night during that massive bombing effort uh, put forth by Germany, you know, there was a certain sense of gladness and relief when it was over. But there were many people who came back and said, I wish we could just do that one night a week now for the rest of our lives, you know, get back in there and get bombed because of the community that took place. He says this, I'll end with this, the early... The earliest and most basic definition of community or of tribe would be the group of people that you would both help feed and help defend. A society that doesn't offer its members the chance to act selflessly in these ways isn't a society in any tribal sense of the word. It's just a political entity that lacking enemies will probably fall apart on its own. And I know we think about culture. We think about our North American culture right now, specifically here in the U.S., and the disunity that exists, and this is not to say, hey, let's wish for calamity, let's, let's wish for war, let's wish for a common enemy, but we read this book, Tribe, by Sebastian Junger, and we go, yes, we were made for community, we need community, and so I think there's a good pushback here on what, uh, you know, Charles Taylor, who's written about the secular age, calls expressive individualism. It's not good for us. We need to be hmm in community. So, well, Jason, when we come back, we're going to have a great discussion at a level where we need to see our tribe, our Christian community, work uh, more to the glory of God and less to the glory of self as we talk to Dr. Diane Langberg about some of the issues that have been infectious, far too, far too pervasive and very infectious in such negative, negative ways in the church as we talk to Diane Langberg about issues related to the trauma that results from narcissism in the church, the abuse of power in the church, and sexual abuse in the church. Stay with us, and when we come back, we're going to have a great conversation with Dr. Diane Langberg. Here at CPYU, we're taking steps to help parents, youth workers, educators, and anyone else who cares about kids help the kids they know and love navigate the difficult issues of life. We've put together a one-day training seminar called Tackling the Tough Stuff that we can bring to your community. Over the course of the day, Mark Penner and I will provide information and practical steps you can take to address narcissism, pornography, self-injury, depression, suicide, and a variety of other tough issues kids face in today's world. 
To learn more about bringing Tackling the Tough Stuff to your church or community, go to cpyu.org backslash toughstuff or call us at 1-800-807-CPYU. Well, welcome back, everybody, to this episode of Youth Culture Matters. I am uh, really excited about who we're going to be talking to today. I'm not especially excited about what we're going to be talking about because it's an indicator of some of the more difficult realities in our world that we have to deal with. We're going to talk to Dr. Diane Langberg. She's a practicing psychologist. She has clinical expertise and 43 years of experience working with trauma survivors and then also uh, with her practice working a lot with, uh, with clergy people. I know that many of you are probably familiar with Diane just from uh, watching videos that are popping up on YouTube from lectures that she gives around the world, and she's been able to speak a lot lately on uh, trauma, uh, sexual abuse, and some of the more difficult issues that we, we see in our culture. Her practice, Diane Langberg and Associates, is based in suburban Philadelphia. We were talking about that. It's actually in Jenkintown, Pennsylvania which is where I grew up, and for those of you who watch television, uh, the television series The Goldbergs is, is, uh, takes place in, in quaint and wonderful little Jenkintown. That's where Diane and 16 uh, associates are working, and they're, they're doing counseling of adolescents and adults. I think one of the things that I love about the way Diane approaches these matters is that she brings the gospel to bear on human brokenness and suffering, with both passion and compassion. She spent time while working with trauma survivors and first responders at places like Ground Zero after 9-11, and then also uh, in Rwanda uh, after the genocide. And Lisa and I had an opportunity to go visit Rwanda, and it is a, uh, a place that where God is doing beautiful things in the midst of some of the most horrific uh, suffering that that could that could happen among people. Uh, her her latest book is called Suffering and the Heart of God: How Trauma Destroys and Christ Restores. We're going to talk a little bit about that. It's published by New Growth Press. It's a wonderful book. I'm recommending it to everybody. And then she's also written uh, several other books, two of which are on sexual abuse. One is called Counseling Survivors of Sexual Abuse, and the second is On the Threshold of Hope: Opening the Door to Healing. For survivors of sexual abuse, that's published by Tyndale House. That actually has a workbook, and she was telling me that that is being used in, of all places, prisons. And there's a lot of trauma and suffering there, I'm sure. So, Diane, thank you for joining us. That was a long introduction. I'm sorry, but uh, I want people to know who you are, and we're grateful that you're here. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I want to, um, you know, you and I have talked in the past just about changes in culture. And, you know, here at CPYU, one of the things that we focus on is just how the culture is shifting. And I tell youth workers, I tell parents that if you want to get a good view of how the culture is changing, there are two groups of people that are especially helpful to talk to. One are school te- that's one is a group known as school teachers who, especially if they've been working with kids for 20 or 30 years, they get to see changes in culture. And the second group is is the group of people that you're a part of and that you do a lot of training with, and that's counselors. How question I have just right out of the gate is how do the issues that counselors are seeing right now reflect trends in the overall culture that parents and youth workers and pastors need to be aware of? You know, what are some of the things counselors are seeing? 
Well, some of the associates that I have, Walt, have been with me for 20 years. And so, um, and many of them not only work with adolescents, but with small children. And so we have often talked together about the changes we've seen in the presenting problems. One of the things that is most obvious is a significant increase in the occurrence and the severity of anxiety, even in very small children. And we have seen um, pornography addictions in elementary age kids, uh, significant pornography addictions. Um, and when you think about marinating a young brain in that, um, it's quite terrifying. And then, you know, you, you see a lot of the structures are falling down. Um, the structure of family is falling down. The structure of church is falling down, either because um, it's not really a community anymore, it's just a mega thing, or because people don't go or don't participate, um, or they've been hurt by the church. Um, and so a lot of those structures, and then you think back, at least I think back in my own childhood, violence in the schools was not even anything anybody thought about. And it, obviously in places like the inner cities and all, it's a, a very difficult problem. But people are living with a, a lot of fear, and the little ones are picking it up. Yeah. We, um, it's interesting you bring these things up. One is the, the whole issue of anxiety and stress. We've seen uh, some some research that's come out recently on the fact that that, that those are the number one uh, number one and number two healthcare concerns that are seen on college campuses in mm -hmm. the uh, you know the healthcare the, on campus the clinics you know you would think that that that's where people go for cuts and bruises but it's actually become a place more about mental health and spiritual yes. health than about physical health. And then, so, so you see that, the increase of that, but what you're saying about the, the age compression, that's I think what it's called, where the kinds of things that maybe we heard about or had to deal with when we were 17 or 18, kids are now dealing with, you know, as you talk about pornography addiction in elementary school children, you know, at five, six, seven years old. And, yes. Yeah, and I, and I think it's interesting, too, that we need to hear what you're saying about the breakdown of the systems that that should be caring. And um, it, just, a, just a side question on that. You know, how, when you think about this and these changes, as you look ahead, you know, just humanly speaking, where do you think this is going to lead? Where, where do you think it's going to take us, you know, in terms of the kinds of pathologies that we see or the, the rate of instance of sexual abuse, um, the violence? The objectification. You, have you thought about that, or I guess I well, guess it's just an increased caseload. I mean, obviously, yeah. Well, yes. <laughs> that means we'll never be out of business, sadly. Yeah. But um, I, I think what I would see as pretty foundational to all of it is the breakdown of uh, good relationship, and that is a fundamental thing. Uh, creatures created in God's image are meant to be in good relationship with him and with each other. And I think that as the structures are not working and as fear increases, there's a lot of mistrust and there's a lot of uh, lack of safety in relationships. Um, and so I, I would think that that will get worse. Yeah. 
Yeah. And then it's easier to hurt other people if you're not in relationship. It's it's easier easier to discard them or betray them or use them in some way. You you talk about um, you, you know the whole book well the book suffering in the heart of God how trauma destroys and Christ restores which is a very hopeful book by the way um, especially when you think about the latter part of that subtitle trauma um, you you've said that it is the mission field of the 21st century and when I first heard that when I read that in the book I thought that is a a powerful statement about where we're at as a culture. Talk about that. You know, how did you come to that conclusion? And what does that mean for those of us who are, who are helpers? Well, when, when I speak of trauma, I'm talking about uh, the kind of suffering that overwhelms normal human coping. You know, we all have stress and difficulties and problems and things like that that are not necessarily trauma. And you can certainly have significant suffering um, that produces things like grief and loss and everything that are not necessarily traumatizing. But trauma tends to break down the personhood um, because of its overwhelming nature and because it violates the self in many ways. And so as I have worked in the office and then trained and then tra I've traveled globally a lot for the last 15 years, and I began in my mind putting together some of the numbers so you, you can have trauma from natural disasters. So you're talking floods and you know your Katrina, you're talking about earthquakes, all of those things. You have trauma from war. <laughs> well, look at the wars and the breakdown of complete cultures and countries in this world. And then you have trauma from things like domestic violence, sexual abuse, rape, military sexual assaults, uh, civilians dealing with war, as well as soldiers dealing with war, trafficking, um, gun violence in our cities and our schools and the stats currently say that given all of that probably one in seven people globally have experienced trauma that's a lot of human beings yeah and the reason I see it as a mission field is because of my work in the sense that when people are suffering they want help and if we go in helping, listening, honoring, caring for, and be, prove ourselves safe and trustworthy, we end up with a door into their hearts. And that's essentially what Jesus did for us. He, he became little and flesh and entered into our experience, which, you know, the incarnation, I think, is the greatest listening that's ever been done. Yeah. You know, he knows what it's like to be a human being in a way that is just outrageous, frankly. And so, but th that's how we got into our hearts. <laughs> and I think so often we want to tell people what to do or throw a verse at them or tell them what they did wrong and that's why they're traumatized and they hadn't done it, you know. We're not, we're not being alongside them in their suffering. And if we do, I, I, it's a powerful mission field and I happen to think it's the call of God on our lives anyway. How do we, you know, when I think about trauma and adults, and this is my uneducated opinion. You tell me if I'm right or wrong. I mean, obviously, well, I'm thinking, would an adult respond to trauma differently? And would the would the fallout, the wake of that trauma be different than it is for, say, a middle school student or an elementary school student? And if so, you know, how? And, and how do those of us who are parents and youth workers or people who work with children and teens, 
How, is there anything nuanced in terms of, res, of a response that we need to hear about that? Well, I think, um, yes, adults can respond differently, but, you know, classic psychologist answer, it depends. Okay. <laughs> um, it depends on life before the trauma in an adult. So if you have an adult who grew up in a healthy, intact family, developed good coping skills, knows how to have good relationships, and has something horrific happen, uh, that's going to be very disturbing in their lives, but they have other experiences to draw on. If you have an adult who lives with chronic trauma, like refugees do, you know, you live with war, then you flee, then you have nothing, and then you're trafficked and sold, and I mean, it doesn't matter if you had a good life, you're going to be severely traumatized. And if you have an adult with childhood trauma, it, it, it has a cumulative effect. On the other hand, obviously, with children, you know that you know, our brains basically are developing until we're about 24 or 25. We're not really adults until then, um, the legal age to the contrary. And so a developing brain is shaped, just like a little tree or whatever is shaped by the way you work with it. And that shaping becomes part of the self if the child is marinated in trauma. Say they grow up with chronic domestic violence for 15 years or ongoing sexual abuse, or sexual abuse and then rape as an adolescent, yeah. or, you know, an ad additional things like that. And their self is shaped by those evils. Yeah. And it's much harder to work with. It's much harder. It can be done. I have seen lives transformed who've lived with chronic trauma. So it's not that it can't be done, but it's a much harder thing to do. Yeah, so with the increase of this, then it makes sense as you give us the numbers and we can expect, humanly speaking, that as the culture continues to change and move in the direction that it's moving in, that that, that one in seven might actually become one in six at some point. Um, of course, we hope it doesn't. Um, but, but this is a mission field, and it's a growing mission field, and it requires, as all mission fields do, understanding that it's a, a cross-cultural mission field, that we, those of us who don't know or maybe haven't experienced trauma need to take the time to, to get beyond just the simple trite here's a bible verse or you shouldn't have done this or just do this and everything will work out so this is where i think um the book comes in and is is just helpful talk a little bit about how you know why you wrote this and and how you hope it's going to be used you know the kind of impact that it will have well, it is in many ways a compilation of things that I have taught and trained people with uh, for the last 15 or 20 years. So some of those literally are reworked talks that yeah. have been given in places like Romania and Rwanda and Brazil. And some of them are things that have arisen out of my consultation with churches that are broken, that have not handled things like um, sexual abuse well. Um, and my, my interaction with leaders in the churches. So it all comes out of that ongoing experience. And for me, I, I see the book as um, a way of educating the larger body of Christ about these issues, about which many are ignorant. It's, it's not like they don't care, they just don't know. And also to help the body of Christ recognize some of the ways that she's contributing and hurting people that are already hurt. So in that sense, 
You know, and as I read it, you know, and, and being familiar with what you're doing and having listened to several of your talks, um, still, it's eye-opening. Uh, it's eye-opening because it helps us in the church and as individuals to see things, to recognize things, to see how we actually become complicit in this. Um, in the book, and, and I've heard you tell the story as well, I've watched you you tell the story, but in the book, towards the beginning, you talk about this visit to Ghana and a place called the Cape Coast Castle. You say that's become for you a parable, a metaphor. Um, tell us a little bit about that. This, is, this, is, this story is, is powerful. I was in Ghana to speak at a conference on violence against women and children, and a dear friend uh, who is uh, Ghanaian uh, took us to Cape Coast Castle, which was one of the, the slave forts on the Gold Coast of Africa at the height of the slave trade. Um, it was a British fort. And so we went into the fort, we saw the slave dungeons, we stood in them, we saw the male dungeons, the female dungeons. We had a guide who told us many things about it. Uh, and I, it, there were millions, literally millions of human beings that were taken through that. And there's a door in the wall called the door of no return that goes out onto the beach where they were put in little boats and taken to the ships and brought to places like this country to be slaves. So we were standing in one of the male dungeons and our guide said, do you know what is above us? And of course we said, no. And he said, it is the chapel. So the chapel was directly above a dungeon of about 200 men who sat chained together in the dark for three months before they were put on the ship. So some of them were dead and still chained, screaming. Obviously, filth was rampant. And the people who ran the fort on Sundays would climb the stairs to the chapel to worship God. That's in quotes. You know, to sing songs and read the Bible and probably take up an offering for the less fortunate, I don't know, running the slave trade underneath. And for I, I, I was standing there in the darkness thinking, this is a parable. This is a picture of the church when she ignores trauma and suffering. She goes to her little enclave and worships God and gives money to poor people or whatever she does and sings songs and turns herself away from the screaming. Now, these people were active in the slave trade, but some of them were there in other ways who were complicit. And that word means folded up with. And so they were, by continuing, by supporting the fort, by doing whatever they did there, actively participating in the destruction of human beings created in the image of God while they worshipped him. And, and you use that as, I mean, as gut-wrenching as that is, then we stop and we think and we say, or we have to ask, how are we doing that today? Yes. Yeah. And and one of the one of the ways to think about that is, you know, we were, we talked about one in seven around the world, but the statistics in this country for just a few things, which for the record are no different inside the church than outside the church. Yeah. One in four women are sexually abused before the age of eighteen. Mm. One in six men are sexually abused before the age of eighteen. 
one in four females are raped at some point in their lives. 90% of the sexual abuse and rape is done by someone the child or adolescent knows. One in four marriages has at least one episode of domestic violence in it. So I, I tell people, you know, you think about your church, you think about your women's ministry and count them off. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. You have victims, some of whom have never spoken, sitting in your pews because they think it's not okay to talk about in church mm. because we don't talk about it. We don't invite them to. And so we go to church and sometimes the people who lived in the dungeon are sitting right next to us and we don't even know. Yeah. Now you do talk about this in the book and we're going to take a break here and when we come back I want to talk about it because this, um, you know, we, we need to overcome the silence if if healing is going to take place, if people are going to move on from trauma to find hope and healing in Christ, we, we do need to, to pull back the curtain and expose this and that's a difficult thing that has not been done well at all in the church. We're going to have you talk about that in some very um, straightforward and practical ways when we come back. So we're talking to Dr. Diane Langberg, who's a uh, therapist, Christian counselor. Uh, she has over 43 years of experience in terms of dealing with uh, suffering and trauma. She's written a new book called Suffering and the Heart of God, How Trauma Destroys and Christ Restores. And we'll be back to talk a little bit more about church systems and abuse. Uh, stay with us, we'll be right back. Here at CPYU, we want to help you help parents stay up to date on today's youth culture. One of our most popular resources is our monthly parent page. This four-page, full-color resource offers parents a timely, practical look into current youth culture trends, along with resources to help them parent their children and teens Christianly in today's rapidly changing youth culture. If you're a youth worker who would like to get this monthly resource into the hands of your parents, you can see a sample parent page and learn more by visiting cpyuparentpage.com. Well, welcome back, everybody, to this uh, episode of Youth Culture Matters. We're having a great conversation with Dr. Diane Langberg. Uh, she is in Jenkintown, Pennsylvania, which is where she lives. And uh, if you were listening to that last segment, you realize that it's a beautiful day in Jenkintown, and the neighbors were having their lawn mowed. So that was that funny noise we heard. And um, as she said, nobody asked us for permission on that, but we'll let them go. It sounds like it's done. Diane, um, I am again. I just want to say thank you for your book, "Suffering in the Heart of God," uh, subtitled "How Trauma Destroys and Christ Restores." We mentioned as well that this whole issue, and you you bring this up in the book uh, in several chapters, but you've also written extensively about sexual abuse in a couple of other books, "Counseling Survivors of Sexual Abuse," and then a book called "On the Threshold of Hope: Opening the Door to Healing for Survivors of Sexual Abuse." In your book, there are two chapters that um, I, I really had to stop and pause as I was reading them because they, they talk a lot about the systems that we live in and the ignorance that we have to, as you said before the break, the abuse and the suffering, um, the trauma-inducing realities that live in our midst in the church. and. It's not just that these people bring these things in. We, we actually make this happen in the church. 
And that's what I want to ask you about because um, obviously we need to recognize this if we're going to deal with it. So chapter 12 is titled Leadership, Power, and Deception in the Church and the Home. How do we abuse power? You know, people in ministry, parents, how do we abuse power? Well, I think the first thing that we have to say is that we all have it, Mm -hmm. and most of us don't feel very powerful. Um, But it's something God has given us. You know, if you go back to Genesis, you know, where he says, create man in our image, male and female, then he says to them, rule and subdue. Those are power words. Those are words of agency. Those are words of go out there and have an impact. That's power. So power is given to all of us. It's God-given. And, you know, even an infant has power. Because if they scream and cry in the middle of the night, all the adults pop up. You know, so it, it, human beings have power to impact. By the way, not me. I used to pretend I was asleep, so <laughs> I was good at that. That's called deception. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I'll admit it. I'm just telling you this is what I did. So the question is, what do we do with it? And... Um, Jesus, when he was leaving, said, all power is given unto me. So part of what he's saying there is that any power that we have is a derivative of his, which means it is to look like him and be used for his glory. Some of the ways that we have power, which people really don't think about, let's just say in the church or in the home, we have power of position. You know, a parent, the position of parent has more power than the position of child. The position of pastor has more than the parishioner, teacher more than the student. And so there's, a, there's power there that can be used well or abused. We have uh, verbal power, some of us more than others. You know, the more articulate we are, the more we're able to convince people, persuade them, we have verbal power. We have power of knowledge. You know, children don't know very much. Their parents tell them the sky's blue and the grass is green. If they told them the opposite, they wouldn't know better. They have the power to name things. So there's a lot of ways, emotional power. Um, And so sometimes people have all of them all wrapped up together, you know, like a leader who's very uh, powerful, uh, charismatic, um, has power position, is verbally articulate, has a lot of, say, theological knowledge and uh, emotional power. And that person can persuade other people using their powers to do things that God says are wrong and so confuse them that they think they're right. So they use their power in deceptive ways to coerce and abuse. We hear about this in the newspaper all the time. It is, it's in the church. It's in Christian schools. It's not just out there. And so I think Christians have not thought carefully about these issues. We have not recognized them. We have often given blind authority to people with a lot of power. Um, And we do not discern when they are using it for ill because they're in charge and they're God's ordained person. And so we just do what they say or we are silent about what they do, which goes back to complicity. Yeah. Let me ask you a question on that. Would it be fair to say that And the reason I'm asking this question is because as we talk to the people in ministry who are listening, um, they're called, and uh, usually, and they are gifted. And um, we sometimes come to to, to depend on our gifts and abilities rather than on God's Spirit. 
And these gifts and abilities, is it fair to say they can really be abused or used in the wrong way? And so the more gifted a person is, if they're self-aware of that or if we're aware of that in others, there would be more of a, a tendency there to lean towards abusing power? Is that a, Would that be a fair assumption or is it, you know, I'm thinking I some of the more charismatic yes. uh, folks out there who just, boom, Pied Piper, everybody falls in line. And when something questionable happens, nobody questions. Well, part of what happens with somebody who abuses is that the first person they deceive is themselves. Right. Okay. And so I'm doing this for their good. I'm helping. I'm teaching them whatever. The next person they deceive is the victim. And then the next person they deceive is the people who find out about it. So the level of deception is long practiced and habituated. And it enables people to do things that some of us find horrifying and are in fact horrifying or that if they were not deceived, they themselves would find horrifying. The other thing in terms of the gifting and all, I don't know that it makes a greater tendency toward abuse. However, people who are gifted, um, people often interpret spiritual gifting and calling to automatically mean integrity. Mm. And you can be powerfully gifted, those gifts given to you by God. And in a position of power that is in a God-ordained institution like the church and have no integrity. And so, I mean, that's, that you know, the enemy is called an angel of light. He was beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> but he had no integrity. Yeah. What's, what systems can we put into place in our churches that would... Um that would propagate into integrity and and you know what are the things that what are the systems that we should look at to tear down that uh promote a the opposite a lack of integrity this this kind of deception and abuse of power well i i think part of it is that church leaders seminary students whatever have to be educated about these issues the church doesn't have much of a vocabulary to talk about these things. Secondly, people need to be taught that the authority of a leader is never absolute. The only absolute authority that there is is God himself. He's, he's the only one who will never abuse us. Mm. <laughs> he's the only one who's not going to get twisted up by his power. And so if we relinquish that belief and and believe that the person in charge is without flaw, then what we're doing is abdicating our own capacity for discernment, which God has given us. And part of our gift to those in leadership is to say, wait a minute, that doesn't look right, or that's not okay, or you're hurting people when you talk to them like that and bully them just because you want them to do what you say. Our leaders need us as a body, not to toddle along behind them, but to love them well enough to speak the truth. Yeah, so accountability uh, is is a huge, huge issue. And, I, I, and this is, I mean, we see this where there is a lack of accountability or accountability systems, or the accountability systems that are put in place are just a group of, quote-unquote, yes-men. Um, 
this, this is where this can really, really take off. So even as you enter into a church then, it would seem to me, you're talking about, you mentioned discernment, it would seem to me to say before you go in, this is not perfect. This is a system, system that's going to be broken like every other system at some level. And so I'm not going to allow myself to be fooled that this is a perfect place with perfect people. And, um, and, and if on top of that, I come into a system where there's little or no accountability, um, this may not be a, a healthy place to stay. We need well, it's to... not going to be a safe place. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, and I like that safe place. Yeah. Did you want to say something else about that or? Could... Well, yes, in the sense that I think the other thing that has happened is that Christians have confused Christendom with Christ. So we see institutions the same as we see him. So the, so the church is God ordained. It was his idea. He's told us how to do it. But we pretty much mess it up a lot. And if we assume because it's the church, we can't say anything, or if we speak the truth and expose, let's say, the abuse of a child, we're going to damage the church. What we're saying is that if we speak truth, which we're called to do by the God of all truth, we're going to damage his people. That makes no sense. And Christendom and Christ are not the same. And one of the things I often talk about when I teach about these things is if you go back to the Old Testament, you know, God said, I want a temple. Build my temple. Here's where to put it. Here's what it should look like. Here's all the pieces and put it together. And then this is what you do inside my temple. So they did. It was God ordained, God designed. And they were to be God worshipers in that place. Well, when they started worshiping idols while they were still doing the godly things, God pretty much blew them to smithereens. They went to Babylon. <laughs> and so what he's saying there is, don't protect the institution unless it looks like me all the way through. If it doesn't look like me, then the light needs to be turned on. And if it needs to be blown up, better it should be blown up than a hiding place for evil. Hmm. That's good. You you uh, mentioned there just a couple of minutes ago the sexual abuse of a child. Um, I'll just tell you this: a couple of years ago, I was asked uh, by youth specialties to do a a seminar at their convention called Wisdom for a Young Youth Worker, and so I you know spent a few weeks writing the seminar, and it was you know when you get asked to do that, by the way, then you know you're old because when they say do a seminar on Wisdom for a Young Youth Worker, they're saying you're old. Talk about this. And so I put this together, and um, the last thing I did was put, I went to put together a PowerPoint, some visuals, and I thought, you know, on the title slide, let's get a picture of some youth workers. So I Google image searched the word youth worker, and what came up was, was horrifying. I bet a, a quarter to a third of the photos that came up were mug shots from newspaper stories about uh, youth workers who had been arrested, were being prosecuted, uh, been found guilty, jailed for sexual abuse of the people to whom they were supposed to be ministering. You know, there's a from that's the abuse of power you're talking about right there. And I think so many of the threads you talk about in the book and you mentioned here come together in that. But so thinking about that, realizing that just visually there, I saw. Uh, the growing reality of these issues. And we hear these stories all the time. It just seems like every week in the newspaper there's a story about 
someone else in a church system or a school system who gets involved in that. Um, I want to talk a little bit about that. That that really needs to be uh, a focus here where we can talk in practical ways about how to respond to this. Um, I, I want to read something you wrote and um, just spring off of this then and help us understand a little bit about sexual abuse and the dynamics and the systems. You, you have a section in here called the culture of systems, and I really think we need to be aware of systems and systems theory, but you said an entire family will deny the truth and alienate a victim or truth teller rather than face the fact that there is a cancerous lump metastasizing and destroying the system from within. We also know that this occurs with regularity in much larger systems, systems that bear the name of Christ. We've seen it in the church and missions and Christian organizations or communities around the world. There is a cancer of immorality, theft, corruption, or sexual abuse, and all of the energy of that system goes to maintaining itself in a good appearance while ignoring the disease. Thinking they are preserving the system they call God's, they fail to see and deal with the disease hidden within. How can we start to see the disease and deal with the disease? Help us with that. Well, it means having the courage to call things by their right name. I mean, that's, you know, God says, expose the deeds of darkness. And he says that because he knows it's cancer. It will destroy us. And it will damage his name. And so we think we're protecting his name by hiding sin. That goes against everything he teaches. It won't protect anything. It certainly won't protect his creatures. And so we have to be willing, and I think personally for me, that starts with looking in at myself. I have to call things by their right name. Otherwise, I'm a deceived person. And if I'm deceived, I'm not going to see very clearly what you're doing or what the church is doing or what other people are doing. And so, you know, somebody will say, um, they have just a mild pornography addiction and they just do it sometimes and they didn't mean to hurt anybody and they'll stop. When the truth is they've been doing it for 30 years and they visit prostitutes and it's destroying them from the inside out. We do that with ourselves and then we do it when we see it in somebody else. And so, for example, I, uh, years ago, decades ago, I had, I had a situation where a youth worker in a church had abused a child, a girl around 11 or something. And I ended up on the phone with the senior pastor, you know, and this was long before there were even reporting kinds of things. But I said, you have to call the police. And the response was, this is a young man and he made a mistake. And we don't want this mistake to ruin this gifted young man's life. And they sent him to another church across the country and did not tell them. And they thought they were preserving a man gifted by God. And what they were saying to him is, yes, you have a lump in your body, but we think you should ignore it because it will hurt you and other people if it's exposed. So he sent off with cancer, which he continues to pass on to other people and which eventually will kill him. Complicity. That's, yes. That's, yeah, yeah. And, it, and it's not a mistake. It's evil to abuse a child. Yeah. And so we use things that aren't the right words. You know, we do that with domestic violence. You know, we had a bad day. Well, she can't walk. <laughs> you know, it's not a bad day. It's abuse. 
Call it what it is. I, you know, you you talk in the book, and and I've heard about these situations. You talk in the book about times and places where a pastor abuses power in a counseling relationship uh, with maybe a weak and vulnerable female parishioner who's coming to him for help, and it winds, you know, it, it very quickly maybe spirals down into um, a relationship we don't we're and you, you were saying we, we don't we're not willing to call that an abuse of power we're not willing to call that sexual abuse and we must it is wrong it is sinful it is that cancer and yet the well, church it, when found out sometimes we'll just cover it up well and the pastor is feeding off the sheep which is what's in ezekiel 34 woe to the shepherds who feed off the sheep the sheep are vulnerable, the shepherd has power. The sheep are not for the shepherd to eat, but to protect. Yeah, and we as youth workers need to hear that. That is, uh, boy, those are powerful words, and we need to stop and really ponder those probably constantly uh, just because of the brokenness in our own lives. This is where knowing yourself, and you talked about this, and and your your weak points, your you're bent towards certain types of sin is um, is so so important so we find out that there's um, a history of abuse or something's taking place in our church it could be with a pastor a youth worker uh, a volunteer um, a parent of one of our students you know what what do we do how do we respond give us something give us practical steps we can take and borders and boundaries that uh, we need to stay within and not cross, especially when others in the system will say, hey, it's not a big deal. We don't want to mess this up, or this is a gifted young man. We don't want to, you know, jeopardize his future. Well, I think part of what we have to do is face the arrogance that has been in the church in the sense that the church thinks, or the leaders think, or whatever, that they can handle such a situation well. And sexual abuse of a child, for example, is a felony. There's no state that is exempt from that. And so what we're essentially saying is we know how to do forensic interviews when a felony has been committed. That is not something they teach in seminary. It is not something church leaders or workers know how to do. And so we have to have the humility to say, this is against the law. We don't know how to handle this. And you pick up the phone and call the people who do. The other thing I want to say about that is that churches think we have to handle it because we need to be the church. Calling the authorities gives them the door in to do the things they need to do, which will protect the child and deal with the uh, illegal behavior. The church still can be, should be, and needs to be the church, which means caring for the victims, caring for the families, and if somebody's carted off to prison because they committed a felony, going to prison to visit because we're called to do that. It's not either or, but if there's a murder in the church, nobody, nobody says, I think we can handle this. <laughs> yeah. But if there's sexual abuse, we think we can. And part of the reason is because the victims of sexual abuse are so vulnerable that they are rarely outspoken enough, though that's changing over the last 15 or so years, it's changing. People get write blogs now if the institution doesn't listen. But they are easily shut up. 
and the church says it's handled it. So you have cases where five-year-old girls are asking forgiveness from 200-pound adult men oh. for being seductive. Yeah. That's heinous. Yeah. And the church is no refuge for the vulnerable when that's the case. Yeah, and let me just say for those who are listening that what Diane is talking about right now is widespread. Uh, this is not, these are not few and far between situations because if we heard what she said earlier about the number of people, by, male and female, by the time they reach of age, the age of 18 who have been sexually abused, we're talking, and, and when the statistics, as you say, and I've heard this over the years, are no different in the, in the church. Um, this, this, this is in our churches, and we need to be aware of it, and and we need to address it. I, I, uh, as you talk about this, I know of one situation where, and and it's indicative of many I know where you, you know the church thinks they can handle it, and there is uh, sexual abuse of multiple um, minors has come to uh, be, be exposed. There are others that are suspected to have been abused, which is, I think, is always the case. You know, where there's one, there's probably many. And there was, um, uh, as this was unfolding, the church sent a very direct letter to everybody in the church and said, if any other girls come forward, don't go to the police, come to us. We'll decide how to handle it. Which is, you know, and I see your face as I say that. It, well, it you under, it's, it's illegal. Yes, it's illegal yeah. to cover up a crime. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the and and th- this is where you know, look, if someone's choking, you call nine one one, and we don't need to, to. We need to deal with it. And um, you know, we're talking about young lives and and victims who are powerless. And when we talk about trauma, you know, this just this continues on. So we report now. Let let's say somebody because you talk about this in the book. Somebody turns the corner, they confess, they repent. Now, I know a lot of times people confess when they get caught. Um, I'm not sure that's exactly confession. Uh, I think that's getting caught. And, and then people will sometimes show remorse and have tears when they get caught. And you write about that very directly, that that is not repentance. Talk a little bit about repentance and uh, even go a step further and talk a bit about uh, restoration, if you would. I, and I know every case is different, so I, I don't want to put you on the spot here with that. But talk first about repentance, and then if we have some time, you know, what does this mean for us as people in ministry or people who work with kids or pastors, whatever? I, I think that it, it is a broad statement that we as the church have lost our understanding of repentance as God intends it to look. We think it is, I'm sorry, and tears and sadness at best. Which, frankly, people who have been habituating deceit for decades or years can do that remarkably well and have it mean nothing. Mm. I mean, you, you, you can't, you're not a sex offender because you woke up one day and decided to have sex with children. <laughs> That's not how it works. It's a habituated thing over years and it happens little by little. So it, it can't be repented of quickly. It's not possible. Repentance, I believe from the scripture standpoint, is such a radical change of mind and heart that I will do anything to be the 
opposite of what I was to walk down an entirely different road. So what that means, let's take it away from child abuse for just a second and put it in a pornography addiction, which is also somebody who is addicted to the narcotic of deceit. You know, it's not just don't turn on the computer. What are you going to do with what's in your head? It, it, it is a constant battle over years to learn to habituate a new way. And frankly, anybody who's struggled with gossip or overeating or a bad temper knows that. You can't just cry and say, I'm sorry, and say you'll never do it again and have that work. It doesn't work. We get steeped in the things that we habituate. So part of what we do is release the offender back in because they cried and said they're sorry. We jeopardize victims, but we also jeopardize the soul of the perpetrator. We are not saying you are a danger to your own soul and we will not let you near any children, maybe ever again. Again, not just because of the abusing, but because of what's in the head, you know? So they, they, they could come to church and there's three little girls in front of them and they record everything in their head and then they go home. They're still feeding it in their hearts. Yeah. You write, uh, one of the things you wrote in here, and I, I'll tell you, I went back, I read this several times because I've been in situations, uh, well, you know, we all have to repent. And this has been helpful to me to understand repentance. And um, we all have these things in our lives. And you talk about that. I mean, that's one of the great things I love about the book is the, the vulnerability, especially as we get to the end and you talk about the way God has worked in your own life through your counseling practice. But you know, just to, to read this over and over to understand a little bit more about how the Holy Spirit brings change, you know, what we know about that. You said, we all know that sinful humans do not turn into godly ones quickly. Our own lives attest to that. Bottom line is that you cannot tell if repentance is genuine for a long, long time. If you think you can, you will have not only fooled yourself, but you will risk vulnerable people. And you're saying, those aren't just the victims, but that's the perpetrator, the soul of the perpetrator himself or herself. So, yeah, this this is um, this is so helpful. Um, you know, any any I know we've come to the end of our time, and I really appreciate this. And I would love to talk more at some point, uh, not just about these issues, but also about some of the other chapters in the book, because each one is just. Um, uh, a wonderful nugget on topics that we need to address. I'll just say this, the, the chapter on narcissism, I've listened to that talk you did several times when I'm driving, and uh, that it's in, it's in the book here as well. That is excellent and certainly something we all struggle with. Um, that, that's, that's a good one. Um, but any closing words uh, to youth workers and parents, to pastors, uh, to folks in churches that it would be good parting words that could maybe set us on a course to correct um, some of the horrible habits we have in regards to these issues. Well, I think what I would want to say is that if we look at the life of Christ here on earth, he was called to face and go through what he most wanted to avoid. Mm -hmm which is the cross. And in that place, he bore all of these things we're talking about. 
no exceptions. I believe, because he's called us to follow him, that part of our work as Christians is to face what we most want to avoid, which is certainly in our own hearts and lives. It's also in the church or the Christian organizations and institutions or wherever it is that he wants, we're to bring light into dark places, but that doesn't work unless you go into the dark places. And we don't want to go in darkness. We want to sit in light in the chapel above the dungeon. The dungeon stinks and it's dark and there's death there. But what I have found is that he's in the dungeon. And that if we will do these things, we will find more of him not only in the way that he transforms our own lives, which will certainly be true, but just in our knowledge and understanding and love for him, because we will understand more of what he did for us. He's not sitting in the chapel. That's not where he sat. He went into the dungeon to bring out the prisoners and the slaves and the filthy and everything else. He's called us to do the same, and he will give us more of himself as we follow him. Mm. That's a good word, and and um, and I know you you write about that brilliantly in the book as well. We're going to put uh, a list up of all that you've written, Diane. We're going to include a link uh, to your website. We want to have people go there. I I would recommend as well, and I think we'll do this um, that folks look at some of the talks that you've given that can be seen on YouTube. There's some great interviews there. Um, I love listening to them and they're very helpful uh personally and in ministry so we'll we'll connect there any other would there be any other resources you would recommend beyond what we've talked about here today with your books on sexual abuse and and suffering and trauma well there are certainly other books that i would recommend i have a list of resource books and things like that on my website okay so folks and, can uh, yeah, and a list of organizations to connect with. Uh, one organization I would mention is GRACE, which stands for Godly Response to Abuse in a Christian Environment, which is at netgrace.org. was founded by Boz Javidjan, who was a prosecuting attorney in Florida for many years for child abuse cases. And I'm on the board, and it ha uh, we have done investigations into some Christian organizations. We're in the process of developing a really extensive certification program for churches to go through to teach them about these issues and how to be as safe as a human institution can be for the vulnerable. Yes. Yeah, so but there's a lot of lot of resources on that website as well. Okay. So that would that website give us an idea on uh, best practices as well as the kind yes. of things to look for, how to respond? Okay. Yes. That's good. With, more, with more coming. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll just say this because um, I, I, you know, as we end here, that uh, beyond these resources, which I think, you know, if I'm talking to youth workers now, you need to be familiar with, realize too, and we say this to youth workers all the time, that um, we are not counselors. We are not equipped to deal with these things, but we can connect the dots between people who are suffering, who are hurting, uh, who have been victimized by things or dealing with addictions. Uh, habits, we can connect the dots between them and good Christian counselors who are uh, equipped to deal with these things and have experience in these things like our friend uh, Diane Langberg. So Diane, thank you so much for being a part of this. And I, I'm promising you that we'll, if you want to, uh, we'll try to get you back on again to talk sure. about some of these other I'd be issues. Glad to. So, 
So thanks, everybody, for joining us. Uh, check out the website. We'll include uh, all kinds of links and lists, as we always do. And I, I will just finally mention that um, any of the books that are on there, we always say, hey, check out our friend Byron Borger at Hearts and Minds Bookstore. He's more than happy to uh, help you with this, and we'll give you some information on our website on uh, for the podcast on how to get a discount on those books from Byron. And um, I'm just going to say it one more time. Uh, it, I am going to add to my list of, of required books for reading for our students and then also for people in youth ministry, uh, Diane Langberg's book, Suffering in the Heart of God, How Trauma Destroys and Christ Restores. Thanks so much, and we'll look forward to chatting you again on the next episode, uh, chatting with you again on the next episode of Youth Culture Matters. Thanks for joining us for Youth Culture Matters, a podcast from the Center for Parent Youth Understanding. If you'd like to learn more about today's youth culture, visit our website at cpyu.org. And if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, email us at podcast at cpyu.org.